You know, our series in Philippians, the, the overarching title is found in Philippians 1.21, and it's for to me to live as Christ. And it's our hope that every single person here today has made that declaration at some point in their life. That you've accepted Jesus Christ into your heart and life. That you've exchanged your sin for his righteousness on the cross. And in so doing, you have functionally declared that for me to live is for Jesus to live through me. The whole book, as we've walked through it so far, really accentuates this reality that each and every day, Jesus is to live through us. Our focus for this day is chapter 3, and kind of our subtitle, if you will, is Press On. Press On. We'll get there in just a few moments. There are two main sections in this chapter. Verses 1 through 11 are really the theology, which is how are we made righteous anyway? Paul has this discussion about the issue of faith and works, the spirit and the flesh, which is throughout the entire New Testament. Of course, he lands in a place that only Jesus can make us righteous. The second half of the chapter, verses 12 through 21, is the practical outgrowth of that reality. This is a pattern of Paul. He talks about the theology, and then he talks about living it out. That second half of the chapter is the press-on element through the difficulties and challenges of our life. Now, those of you who have spent many years at Reston Bible Church, you know that uh, Pastor Mike always had a tagline. And so I have a tagline for you today in his honor. The tagline is, Righteousness in Christ empowers pressing on to take hold of our ultimate salvation. In other words, we have, we have righteousness in Christ here and now. That empowers us to press on through this life until we reach our ultimate salvation in glory in Jesus Christ. And every day is a call to have Jesus live through me, for me to live as Christ. And that means that I will press on until that point. And that's what we're going to talk about today. A brief word of introduction, Philippians chapter 3 verse 1. Paul transitions from chapter 2 where he talks about his relationships with Timothy and Epaphroditus. I hope you have the card still. Some of you I know are praying through those each morning. Am I like-minded and reliable and a true servant like these brothers? A fellow worker, a fellow soldier in the things of the gospel? Pray that message is still ringing in your ears. In verse 1 he says, Finally, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. The word finally really is better rendered. Now then, we transition. It's not finally as if he's closing it out. He's saying we've had a a discussion and now, and so then we're going to round the corner into a new discussion. He is commanding them to rejoice. The word is a present active imperative. It's a command. He says you ought to do this. You ought to be joy-filled, not because of your circumstances, but in spite of them, perhaps, walking in the Lord. Martin Lloyd-Jones, pastor for 30 years of the Westminster Chapel in London, said that God's people are meant to be people who are always rejoicing in the Lord. Always. This first half of the book, the how are we made righteous, made righteous in Christ, really has three elements. And then we'll transition to the second half of our chapter. The first half of our chapter, how are we made righteous then? Paul declares it boldly. Righteousness is through faith in Jesus Christ and not 
of ourselves. We always know that in the Bible there's this tension between faith and works, the flesh and the spirit, the world and so forth. Paul jumps right into some very challenging imagery. We'll read the passage and then explain it on the back side. Verse 2, it says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, Paul says, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now these discussions about the dogs and circumcision and so forth, these are rather off-putting illustrations. They are Old Testament and first century thinking that to the 21st century mind is a little unusual, perhaps even odd. The word dogs calling these people, these Jews, these Judaizers, those who desire to put works back in connection to the gospel, Paul calls them dogs. Well, why is that? You see, the Jews of old, they raised themselves up as the people of God, and they were, but they separated themselves out rather than being the conduit through which God blessed and touched the world. And then they went further to look down on those non-Jews and he referred to them as dogs. And these dogs are a particular word which means kind of ravenous beasts that roam and prowl about. He says, we are the true circumcision. What is that? What does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, you know that circumcision was the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. I saw a sermon not too many years ago by John Ortberg. Many of you know that name. You see, God has, when he makes a covenant, he puts a sign involved in that. He connects something to it. And he, he postulated that perhaps Abraham stood before God when God said, I'm going to make a covenant with you and the sign will be circumcision. He said, but Lord, Noah got a rainbow. And uh, kind of hoping that maybe we could change the symbol for this particular covenant. But what Paul refers to as those who claim the circumcision, the sign of God, because of what they had done, how they had set themselves apart in all the wrong ways, he now refers to them as not the circumcision, but the mutilators of the flesh. Again, it's a very rough, crude image that God is not afraid to use because he wants to separate out the reality of what happens in this life in the name of God that is wrong and focus on the true, the true people of God. You see, human beings throughout all of history, even to today, try to add back in human effort to the gospel. Undoubtedly, you have seen at some point in your journey, whether it's a bumper sticker or some other placard, the word coexist. Somewhere along the way. And basically the idea of coexist is we're kind of all the same. We're all moving in the same direction. Why can't we all just get along? The first symbol to see is for Islam. The second symbol piece is really about the, the hum, hum, humanity. The idea of humanism. The third is, well, it's male and female. It's we're all just the same. Again, why can't we all just get along? Then there's the, the Jewish star, of course, the star of David. And then the eye, if you look at the dot in the eye, that symbol represents paganism, Wiccan witchery. And you have the Taoism symbol of the yin and the yang, and of course, followed by the Latin cross. Let me say this to you by way of reminder that every faith, ism, and ology Every single one except ours 
is all about human effort to some degree or another. Every single one. The common root of every single faith that we have except ours is human effort. And then many denominations today of Christianity have sought to add back in to the gospel of Jesus Christ works. And we could go down several. We will not. But there are those denominations of Christendom today that overtly in their theological statements say that you have to do something for your faith. And the very focus of our passage today is that those who do that, those who were doing that in the first century are the evildoers for doing so. This first section is how are we made righteous? Paul declares it. Righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And then he elaborates. He says, oh, you want to talk about human effort? You want to talk about credentials and credibility? Okay, let's go there. And he talks about his own credentials. Verse four, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, Paul says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day. You want to talk about circumcision? You want to talk about the symbol of the Old Testament covenant? I'm there. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, blameless. He says, I'm slaying it, man. I'm on top of it. I've got it all. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. You know, Benjamin was the only, only founding father of our faith who was actually born in the promised land. The first king of Israel came from my tribe. Did you know that Mordecai, in the story of Esther, he's from the tribe of Benjamin? A Hebrew of the Hebrews, you know what that means? He's saying, I am purebred. There is no corruption in my family line. I go all the way back, pure bread. Pharisee? You want to talk about being zealous? That's what the Pharisees were known for. They were sticklers on the law. I've got that nailed. Basically what Paul is saying is, you think you're so much? You think you got it all together? You you think you have credentials? Ha! He's like, Harvard? I laugh at you all. (laughs) Yale? What's Yale? Harvard? I'm from the school of Gamaliel the best of the best of the best in the first century. You all are fools compared to my credentials. And then he goes on. If righteousness is through faith in Jesus Christ, my worldly credentials, he says, number three, are all as lost for Christ. He says, I have taken everything that I have considered valuable in this world And by comparison to Jesus, it's nothing. Verse seven. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. First key phrase. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And being found in him, second important phrase, Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Third phrase, that I may know him 
and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. First key phrase. Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. What Paul is using here are very, very important accounting terms. Paul says gain. He's using the imagery of significant financial gain. All of that gain, all of that profit, everything that I have amassed, I count as loss. Another accounting term, which means bankruptcy. It means it's nothing. It means it has failed. Everything that I have, he goes on to say, is rubbish. The word for rubbish is a crude term. It can mean any material unused and rejected as worthless or unwanted. But most scholars and some translators say that this is especially referring to solid animal waste. It's a little gross, true. But Paul says, everything that I have is nothing but animal poop. Yes, I said it in church. (laughs) Paul said it, and that's what it is. He's using a radical, stark contrast on purpose for the value of the shock of saying that my Harvard, Yale, Oxford, Gamaliel credentials are absolutely poop when it comes to Jesus Christ. And as Paul sits in a Roman jail, as he writes this letter, looking back on 30 years of ministry, he says, I am following Jesus Christ and all of that is worthless to me. In Matthew chapter 19, there was a rich young ruler who came to Jesus and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And they bantered back and forth for a few moments about the law. And he said, all of these I had kept. He said, what else do I lack? And then Jesus went for the jugular. He said, sell everything that you have and come and follow me. He didn't sit and talk. He didn't say, Jesus, help me understand how to do this. I, I want to hear what you're saying, but I'm struggling. Can we talk further? Can we, can we kind of flesh this out over a cup of coffee? I really want to follow you, but I'm a very wealthy man and I need to figure all that out. No, he just walked away and he chose wisely. He sacrificed clarity on eternal life because of what he had in this life. Paul goes on. He says, I've counted all of this, but loss, our second phrase, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through Jesus Christ. Do you live today counting everything as loss and that you would have your righteousness in God's eyes through Jesus and Jesus alone? That's easy to say. It's easy to want until God takes something away from us that we realize we want more than we wanted Jesus. I don't believe that God is in the habit of just simply taking things away from us because he enjoys seeing us suffer, certainly not. But God is not opposed to orchestrating our lives to shine a light on the reality that often we love this life and the things of it 
more than we really love him. John MacArthur says, faith is the confident, continuous confession of total dependence on and trust in Jesus Christ for the necessary requirement to enter God's kingdom. It is the ongoing, continuous, confident confession of our dependence on the living God and not on the things of this life. In Matthew 10, Jesus said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus lays it out. He makes it very clear that everything of this world must pale in comparison if we are to fully grasp what it means to have our identity and our righteousness in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. Paul said, I count all these things as loss. My righteousness comes not by the law, but through Christ. And then the final, the third phrase in this section, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. The word to know here is not an intellectual knowing only. It is a full body, full person, experiential, personal knowing of Jesus Christ. It comes through daily, in-depth engagement with him through the word, through prayer, through fellowship, that we may know him and see the power of all that he has and all that he is in our lives. It is reflected, it is reflected in a daily journey with him. It says, becoming like him in his death. Becoming like him in his death. Such a complete identification, one scholar says, is that it can only be described as a death. The symbol of baptism when one is lowered into the water is that of death in Jesus Christ. Taking everything that we have in this life, our human efforts, all that matters to us and considering it dead that Jesus may rise to the surface. You know, some struggle to come to Jesus like the rich young ruler because they're afraid of what Jesus might do. You know, I will admit to you that there are times in my life that I have passed through difficult waters and I have struggled because of the things that God has allowed in my life and that I wish if I, that if I had known them in advance, I may not have signed on the dotted line to follow Jesus, but in so doing, I would have sacrificed eternal life for the things of this earth. And some of us here today are struggling because God is closing a door or God is taking away a vision for you. I don't know why God is doing that. I don't know what God has planned for you. But I will tell you that I have known person after person after person. And it is absolutely true that God rarely uses someone greatly before he has broken them significantly. And part of God's use for his kingdom comes through brokenness in this life and the annihilation of the things that we value above him. And some, it says, in these hard teachings, walked away and never followed Jesus again. And there are those who've walked away and are not following Jesus to their own detriment. And some of us here today are being tempted by a struggle in life, a pain in life, a, the Removal of something from our life. I've spoken of Joel Rosenberg from uh, the stage here many, many times. He's an old friend. He has family who work at the church here, Susan Rebays, and Mike Myers is one of his, was, was his brother-in-law when they moved to Florida. 
Spending so many years with the Rosenbergs, their kids I've seen grow up, and one of them is Jonah. Jonah's in his mid-20s now, and I've seen Jonah grow up from a little boy. We spent many years at the beach together, and uh, if there's one thing that Jonah rose above, all the other kids, it was playing soccer. He could do things with a soccer ball like you have never seen, and he just crushed everyone. When the Rosenbergs moved to Israel and became citizens there, Jonah had his target on becoming part of the Israeli national soccer team, and he was well on his way until an injury completely obliterated that dream. He's like, okay, okay, Lord, I don't know what you have for me, but let's keep going. And he healed from that, and he had his surgeries and so forth. And as every Israeli young man, he was required to serve in the uh, the military there. And he had his sights on becoming special forces, and he was well on his way. Doing thing, drills and things and jumping out of planes and all kinds of things that you just kind of don't tell your mom along the way while it's happening, right? <laughs> Until another injury sidelined him, and he was forced to separate from the military. And as a young man, having two very significant dreams dashed, he continued to follow the Lord. He continued to press on. And today, Jonah serves as one of the executive directors of the Joshua Fund, his father's ministry that serves Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. And Jonah is on the front line serving Jesus, bringing aid to Jews and Arabs alike in the name of Jesus Christ in the middle of a very difficult place in the world. And God has caused him to shine as he has continued to press on, watching more than one of his dreams. God dismantle as he becomes broken and God raises him up for the things of Jesus Christ that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. Are you willing? Are you willing to consider all as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus that God may walk you through that as you press on and use you mightily for the sake of the kingdom? The first half of this chapter is really about theology. It's really about how is righteousness attained. And Paul declares very boldly that it's declare, it's, it's, it, it happens only through Jesus Christ. And that we, ha- in spite of worldly credentials, we consider them as loss. And now he moves into the second part of our chapter, verses 12 through 21, the practical application about gospel living. What does it mean to live this out? Straining toward the goal, verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of you who are mature think this way. And if in any way, anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is very reflective of how we started out this series in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 where it says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, I'm rounding the corner. I have all of this in life that I've counted loss. And in spite of the fact that I'm sitting in a Roman prison right now, not sure of what will happen to me, I, although I'm not perfect, I haven't completed the course yet, I press 
on, he says. The word perfect in that phrase, which occurs twice in this passage, I'm not already perfect, doesn't mean perfect the way you and I think of perfect, as in perfection. It really means complete. It means I've finished the race. I've come to that consummate state where all is as it will be. Press on has the idea of a sprinter. And it refers to aggressive, energetic action, forward-leaning. 35 years ago, I was living in Denver. I was 27 years old and I had a friend who came to visit. He was about eight years or so my junior and uh, he was coming to visit a group of guys that I was involved with out there and we decided we were going to go for a run. And being very competitive and foolish, uh, I was frustrated as we were running because Scott would just run a little bit ahead of me and then I would try to catch up with him and then he would try to run a little bit ahead of me and then I would try to catch up to him. So in our six-mile run, our pace began to increase over the course of the entire run. And about five and a half miles into the run... Scott looks over at me and I am fuming at this point because he keeps going a little faster and I keep trying to, and I'm like, why are you running ahead of me? And instead of just saying something, I just kept pressing him and pressing him and pressing him until finally at the five and a half mile mark, he looked over and he said, sup, when are we going to be finished? And I said, yes, I finally broke him. (laughs) We finished the race and I have been suffering with tendonitis in my left knee any time over three miles for the last 35 years. I feel like Jacob having wrestled with God at the Jabbok River over my pride, walking away with a limp. Because at the end of our race, at the end of our run, it wasn't supposed to be a race, we were sprinting. Now, we all know that life, in many ways, the metaphor is a marathon as well. But the image, the picture, the flavor of what Paul is saying here in the phrase, press on, is that we are to continue with aggressive, energetic action in our journey with Jesus Christ with our eyes kept focused on the prize, on the prize. Homer Kent in the Expositor's Bible Commentary says, Paul understands clearly that he has a continuing responsibility to pursue the purposes for which Christ has chosen him. Spiritual progress is ever the imperative Christians must follow. Continuing on, he says, forgetting did not mean obliterating the memory of the past, but a conscious refusal to let them, the memories, absorb his attention and impede his progress. We are to look forward toward Jesus. We have issues in our past. There are frustrations there. There are regrets there, perhaps. There are challenges there. And in the midst of those things, not obliterating them as if they don't exist, not dealing with them when we must, but not allowing them to become a hindrance to us as we press forward. Verse 14, in the crux of the matter, I press on toward the goal for the upward, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And that phrase, upward call, what that means is the time when God calls 
every believer to heaven and into his presence will be the moment of receiving the prize which has been an unattainable goal in this earthly life. You have been made righteous in Jesus Christ. We then live this life with our eyes focused on Jesus unto our ultimate goal when we will experience the prize. Let me remind you, the theological terms for this process are threefold. The first is justification. When we embrace Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are then justified before the living God. We stand as righteous in Jesus before him. That is the moment when we accept Jesus. Then we launch into what may be considered phase two of our salvation journey which is the process of sanctification whereby God sharpens us into the image of Jesus in this life unto the third element of our salvation journey which is the ultimate conformity to Jesus Christ at the end of the age in our glorification when we will look like him we are in this second phase and the second phase requires that we maintain a grasp on what we have achieved in Jesus Christ and him alone, that righteousness, with our eyes focused on the future glorious outcome while we press on in this life. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let's also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race That is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. The word looking in this passage looking to Jesus is actually a rather weak translation. That word really means to intently gaze without diverting attention. It means that as you walk forward, your gaze should be fixed on Jesus regardless of the chaos that is occurring in life around us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Five things through this passage, these two sections. First is that that our righteousness is through Christ and Christ alone. We take our worldly credentials, we consider them as loss, and in the process we then end up on a journey of straining toward the goal. And Paul finishes out this chapter with a final word of encouragement about the how-to of the living it out. And it's that we should imitate a godly journey. Paul says in verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have seen in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself we are to imitate one another we are to allow the iron sharpening iron process of human relationships to continue to keep our focus on jesus christ who is our ultimate model there are many who have walked away from the faith 
and many who will continue to do so. The Bible speaks to that not only here, but in 1 John chapter 2. It says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. It's very confusing. When someone who claims Jesus Christ walks away from their faith. That's happened to some of us here. Someone you love. Who once claimed Christ. Who now do not. We've seen high profile pastors and other people in the Christian community. Who have deconstructed their faith. Which is code for trashed the whole thing and walked away. And we sit puzzled by that. And the Bible says, don't be puzzled by that. This is not a phenomenon that's just happening here today in the 21st century church. Oh no, it's been happening for the last 2,000 years and it's happened in the first century. Paul says right here in Philippians, don't let that bother you. Continue to press on following the example, a godly example. My example and those others in in your midst. Do not allow yourselves to be discouraged. You know, in 46 years of walking with Jesus, I have seen many who have walked away from the faith. My best friend from high school, we walked all through youth group together, is not walking with Jesus today. My best friend from seminary, we walked through four very challenging years of seminary today, and he has gone on to deconstruct his faith. And for someone in your life, that may be true as well. And the message from Philippians Chapter 3 today is press on. Press on. Our overarching focus for the entire series is to live as Christ. To me, to live as Christ. And I want to share with you three quick applications, challenges, questions for you and for me today as we head out of our time together. The first one is that we are to count all as loss. For Christ. As you consider your journey in Jesus Christ, as you consider Philippians chapter 3, the question that we have to answer today is Do I truly consider everything of this life as rubbish compared to the place that Jesus has in my life? Have I declared personally that all is loss, that whatever I consider Credible for me, my accomplishments, those things that are important to me, I have submitted to Jesus Christ. Some of you today are experiencing, as we talked about a moment ago, the the death of a vision. Something that you want, something that you've wanted, something that you've pursued, perhaps something that you even felt that God was leading you to. The, the, The God's will track that you have been on and suddenly that is... No more. And you're looking to heaven going, what? What God? And the the road ahead seems unclear. And for those who haven't experienced that, you might. You might. And are you willing to say in those moments, I count it all as loss? 
God, you're in charge of my life. If you want to redirect my life, if you had a vision in front of me that I, that I pursued because I thought it was from you, and maybe for that time it was, you are free to divert my path if you so choose. And I will count it as loss. And the second question then leads from it is, are you fixing your eyes on Jesus Christ today? Is your singular focus Jesus? We take all this life has to offer and we set it behind us for, for Christ and we keep our eyes focused on him. In Matthew chapter 14, Jesus came to the disciples who were in a boat in the midst of a storm and he was walking on the water and Peter called out to him and he said, Lord, if that's you, bid me come to you. And he said, come to me. And Peter stepped out of the boat and what did he do? He was walking on the water and then it went tragically wrong because Peter got distracted. He diverted his gaze from Jesus onto the reality of the storm. He's like, oh my goodness, human beings don't walk on water, least of all in the midst of a storm. And what did he do? he started to sink because he diverted his view from Jesus Christ. When Adam was four or five years old, we were talking about this very story of Peter walking on the water and he very confidently said, Daddy, if I was walking on the water, I know I wouldn't sink because I'm not going to take my eyes off of Jesus. I'm like, that's right, buddy. That's right. Adam's 19 now. He's a freshman in college. And he's had a very difficult week. He's had a very difficult week. And we had a very, very difficult conversation with him last night. He was not well. He was having a hard time. And the singular message that we gave to him was, you are taking your eyes off of Jesus. Your eyes are on your circumstances. This is going to pass. In the grand scheme of things, God is in control. Put your eyes back on Jesus. Put your eyes back on Jesus. Do you count it all as lost for the sake of Christ? That's the challenge for you and for me today. All of your accomplishments, as wonderful as they are, as much as God is using them, are rubbish compared to Jesus himself. Are you fixing your eyes on Jesus today? Is the distractions of life causing you to sink? Third and finally, in this journey of pressing on, the third element, the third challenge, the third question is, are you straining toward the goal? Are you keeping your ultimate salvation eternally safe in heaven with Jesus Christ in focus? 2 Corinthians 4 says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And the message to us today is, take your eyes off of the things that are seen and focus on that which is unseen, which is Jesus and your ultimate goal of salvation. Many of you know that Pastor Mike spent many years going to the Amazon for what is referred to as the Jungle Pastors Conference. 
You go to Brazil, you get on the Amazon, you take a speedboat ride up the Amazon for about two hours to a remote conference center where pastors from all over the country come sometimes several days by canoe to come to the conference. And many times Pastor Mike has invited these pastors to come to the United States and every time they refuse. Their primary reason is that they do not want to be distracted by all of the things that we have here in America that distract them from their focus on Jesus Christ. They live humble, simple, difficult lives that are not nearly as distracting for them as all that we have here as privileged North American, Northern Virginia Christians. Things that distract us day in and day out that cause us to ch- the challenge of forgetting that we are to say all of this is loss for the sake of Christ. I'm going to fix my eyes on him and I'm going to press on today. In May, I'm going to be going to Brazil for my first jungle pastors conference. And I must say I'm a little intimidated to meet a group of pastors who wouldn't trade places with me for anything because they don't want the things that we have that often keep us from considering it all loss, focusing on Jesus and pressing on with him in our view to our ultimate goal. Are you distracted today? Or are you willing to consider it all loss for the sake of Christ, pressing on to the ultimate goal of salvation in Jesus Christ? Father, thank you. Thank you for the journey that we have together here. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the Apostle Paul. Thank you for what you've taught us. And I pray, Lord God, that we would all consider everything of this life as lost for the sake of knowing you. And that today, tomorrow, we would press on with our eyes fixed on you until we meet you and experience our ultimate home with you in heaven, we pray. In your great and mighty name, amen.